This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to a very special Bugle indeed, because for the first time ever in Bugle history... We lost the first 20 minutes that we recorded for this week's show due to technology being a feisty little bastard and wiping it off the computer or or something, Chris said. Something about files being corrupted, and that, to be honest, is way beyond my sphere of technological comprehension. But the good news is we still have the rest of the show for you. The bad news is the first 20 minutes was probably the best bit, to be honest. But the good news is that doesn't mean the rest of it wasn't the usual solid 2.5-carat bugle gold. The bad news is, you will not be hearing some lovely stuff about the Mali crisis, but the good news is, it's probably been reported on by other news outlets. The bad news is, our coverage was bang in line for a Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism, and the good news is, Mali will still probably be in the news next week, so we'll just do it all again. The bad news, though, Mali will probably still be in the news next week. So, in the meantime, here is what is left of issue 222222, that's the... Sound check done. Here is what is left of issue 222. All aboard the Bugle Train. This is the 222 service calling at all stations to Satire Central via Bullshit Temple Meads. Uh, I'm uh, Andy Zaltzman, uh, as you may have guessed. I'm in uh, London, England, uh, appropriately enough for this uh, 222 issue. The uh, What's left of it? The city voted 222nd in the city that most looked like a banana in aerial photographs competition this year. I was joined for this bugle when we initially recorded it on Saturday by phone from a Denver hotel room by none other than John Oliver. Now, as you can well imagine, he kicked things off, as he so often does on the bugle, with some showbiz chit-chat about how he'd been playing cribbage with Greta Garbo's ghost or something and then had a wrestle with Hulk Hogan dressed in a monkey outfit on top of the Empire State Building and got a piggyback to work from Madeleine Albright. The the usual kind of stuff. Uh, I then informed you that, as this is the bugle for the week beginning Monday the 4th of February 2013, it is exactly 224 years to the day since little Georgie Washington was elected the first president of the USA, and that means that tomorrow is exactly 224 years to the day since George Washington had a tattoo on his left buttock reading POTUS hashtag one in ancient Roman-style lettering inside a picture of a serpent strangling a mermaid. Other ink on G-Wash included a tattoo of his wife Martha in a bikini, something in Chinese about how it is good to be nice to people, and a picture of Benjamin Franklin. Well, a bet's a bet. Sure, they were both a bit drunk after celebrating signing the Constitution, But, to be honest, Washington was naive to think he could eat 51 eggs in a single sitting. In the end, he only managed four before clacking like a chicken, shouting, call me Captain Roosty, and collapsing in a coal scuttle. I would also have told you that Monday was also exactly 101 years since the death of Franz Reichelt, who, on the 4th of February 1912, discovered with the aid of one Eiffel Tower and one homemade parachute suit that his homemade parachute suit had a slight technical glitch. It didn't work. Or at least, it didn't work nearly as well as gravity works. He realised this in the time that it takes a man not wearing a parachute to fall 57 metres from the Eiffel Tower's first deck to the ground. Not much time, then, for him to come up with a plan B, perhaps just enough really to think of what he'd say in the post-match press conference on the positives he could take from going fatally 1-0 down in his battle with science. But fair play to the lad, he had experimented before his jump by throwing dummies out of high windows. The parachute suit didn't work with them either, so he concluded that if he replaced 
Those two key things, the windows and the dummies with improved alternatives, the Eiffel Tower and himself, then logically it had to work. Logic, schmlogic, he must have thought as he splattered himself to a heroic but nonetheless permanent end on the icy Parisian ground. But on the plus side, by popping his own clogs in such an idiotic way on the altar of experimentation in 1912, he happily missed out on World War I, the global influenza epidemic, the rise of Hitler, World War II, Germany beating Hungary in the 1954 World Cup final, and keeping up with the Kardashians. So, all in all, not nearly as bad a career move as it must have seemed to him at the time. Then, after that bit, there was the section in the bin. Uh, this week, it was a book review section, uh, focusing on the latest works by the literary pornsmith E.L. James. 2012 was, of course, a great year for E.L., with uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, the low-grade grill fiction, becoming the fastest-selling paperback of all time. Of course, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was a book which seriously disappointed prison refurbishment consultants the world over as they excitedly dived into what they thought was going to be the paint catalogue to end all paint catalogues. It was also a grievous letdown to those who thought they were buying an academic treatise analysing the home lighting designs of the former 1980s New Zealand cricketer Evan Gray. But in our section of the bin, we looked at the latest sequels that E.L. James has chundered out, including Fifty Shades of Puce, Fifty Big Penises, Ouch, That Was My Arse You Just Smashed With a Vase, A Guide to Corporate Taxation 2013, Unexpected Change of Direction for E.L. That Could Test Her Core Fans, War and Peace, a controversial rewrite of little Leo Tolstoy's smash hit classic, rewritten by E.L. as a short story about a man putting up a shelf whilst his girlfriend makes a cup of tea, whilst both of them think about genitals. And of course, the long-awaited finale in the Fifty Shades series... You, Mrs. Pankhurst. And then after that, we crack straight into our special Africa section, some of which you're about to hear, some of which you'll have to wait until next week's show for, for an updated and even better version of it. But do enjoy what's left of the show we recorded on Saturday, and apologies that the prize for the Super Bowl competition is now no longer valid unless you have a time machine. Zimbabwe update now, and Zimbabwe. Andy, as we have commented on in the Bugle over the last few years, has had one of the world's funniest currencies, <laughs> leading to some of the world's least funny consequences from that currency. Uh, things have seemed to settle down a little recently. The power-sharing government set up in 2009 finally ended years of spectacular hyperinflation by using the US dollar, uh, but their economy is still fragile. And I'm talking Ming vase in an earthquake, fragile Andy. <laughs> Except not a real Ming vase, because that would be worth too much. I'm talking an imitation, borderline worthless Ming vase <laughs> during an earthquake fragile. And this was proven when Zimbabwe's finance minister, Tendai Biti, revealed that at one point earlier this week, Zimbabwe only had $217 left in its public account after paying civil servants. He quickly countered that, saying that the following day, $30 million of revenue had been paid in. And then an accused journalist of stirring up trouble, saying... You journalists are mischievous and malicious. The point I was making was that the Zimbabwean government doesn't have the funds to finance the election, to finance the referendum. So, so he's saying, don't panic, Andy, but I'm afraid that chicken has long since sashayed out of the coop. <laughs> Especially as he followed up that revelation by revealing that they now essentially can't afford elections anymore. Oh, that should settle people down. Don't worry about only having $217. I was trying to make the much larger point that there's no way we have enough money for democracy anymore. Okay, <laughs> is everyone calm now? Good. Yeah, $217, that's about £138 in real money. That's, that's not a lot for a country like Zimbabwe. That is barely enough to buy 20 decent quality cudgels for Robert Mugabe's goons. <laughs> 
But democracy is, it's, I mean, it's annoyingly expensive, John. And I mean, you see, I, mean, I reckon an, clearly an election does cost more than uh, $217. We get the same thing here uh, in this country. The government bangs on about wanting to save money by streamlining politics, saving just minuscule fractions of the national budget whilst allowing tax to be basically voluntary if you're a big enough company. So this is not just a Zimbabwean problem. And we can laugh at this, John. Zimbabwe only having $217 left in its account because we in the West have absolutely f***ing loads of money in our accounts. Admittedly, <laughs> all of it is pretend and most of it is negative money, but that is still loads of money, John. Loads of it's money. It's loads. It's loads. The number's big. That's, a, that's the only important thing. Uh, apparently, Zimbabwe needs nearly $200 million to pay for their election as well as a referendum on a new constitution, which they are now going to attempt to source from donors. And... And what could possibly go wrong there, Andy? It's not like rich people donating money for a constitutional referendum would expect something in return for that. Say, I don't know, something in the Constitution about how they're allowed to hunt people from helicopters every five <laughs> years. I'm sure they wouldn't be interested in something like that. Actually, I wonder how much it would cost as a donation, Andy, to have the Bugle constitutionally recognised as the official <laughs> podcast of Zimbabwe. Because that would be tempting. Well, Buglers... I mean, we're going to have to offer a pretty decent sum, so get your voluntary subscriptions flooding in <laughs> and we will attempt to take over Zimbabwean politics. <laughs> See, Andy, there's the British side of us which cannot help, but even though doing it half of a joke, there's still an imperialist intent behind that suggestion. <laughs> the, uh, the Finance Minister, Mr Beatty, attempt to con- attempted to control this panic by putting things in perspective, saying, we're in a challenging position, we're a small economy, and we've got huge things to be done. But the Minister for Finance of Greece has an even worse story. Wow, <laughs> that is a classless move from that Zimbabwean. Just leave him alone. But I've got to say, when struggling African governments are making fun of you, Greece, your economy is f- Gambia news now, and, well, we talk about all the problems in the global uh, economy and uh, around Africa. Gambia has the perfect solution. Uh, The president, uh, Yaya Jame, has suggested a four-day week for public sector workers with Fridays as an extra day off. Uh, Now, he's claiming this is to give Gambia's mainly Muslim population more time to pray as well as socialise and tend to fields. Uh, Uh Whereas his critics have said it's going to promote laziness. Uh, and disrupt the economy. Well, I mean, John, this is one of the greatest economic moves in the history of humanity. It sounds... Laziness makes economic sense, as I'm I'm sure all economists from Adam Smith via J.K. Galbraith to John Maynard Keynes would testify if they were being honest. Are there any economists apart from them? I think those are the only three so far. But let me explain this, John. Why is there unemployment in the world? Well, of course, experts will tell you it's because of stuff like people not having jobs. In other words, being unemployed. Others will add that it's because of the jobs market inevitably struggling to keep up with the technology world. Uh, So that, say, in publishing, a single computer with a printer can now do in 10 minutes what it used to take a squad of 500 monks about a year and a half to do, without the slightly over-flashy layout as well. Others will say that globalisation has exacerbated the issue of unemployment in the West. A simple human nature proves that, whilst a boss might enjoy blowing cigar smoke directly into the eyes of staff in his own country, he gets even more turned on by the thought that, for half the price, he can indirectly blow smoke into the eyes of six times as many workers. (laughs) The point is that a four-day week would kill unemployment stone dead. If you have an unemployment rate of 20%, 
Uh, if you forcibly give people 20% more time off, they will get 20% less work done. So employers will then have to employ 20% more people. Bonjour, Monsieur Full Employment. Merci, Professor, Math- Professor Mathematics. It's, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 you cannot argue with facts, John. You can try, but it won't work. <laughs> it's even harder to argue with, some, argue with something that sounds like a fact, but demonstrably isn't. There's just no way into that argument. Look, I don't know anything about Gambia, John, because they've never qualified for a major international football tournament or won an <laughs> Olympic medal. But, but still, I'm prepared to accept they're absolutely bang on the banana with this one. They are right as a nut, because it would, not only would it solve unemployment, it would also boost leisure spending. You know, it's an extra day dicking about. You get to, it's going to make everyone happier. More time off, give people more time to shop, cook, and eat properly, exercise more, read, play parlour games, write sonnets, and court each other romantically. All making people more relaxed and productive at work. Now, because for my one year of having a real job, and by real, I don't mean real. I mean sitting in an office thinking, oh, shit, I've got to get out of this. I can testify that no one does anything on a Monday apart from think, Shit, it's only seven days until next weekend is over. What's the f***ing point? So a four-day week is going to make us all healthier, more intelligent people with happier marriages who will therefore live longer and happier lives, which in the West is the last thing we want. We already can't afford pensions. We need people being unhealthy, miserable, and trapped in loveless marriages. Economically, that is the only thing keeping us afloat. So on reflection, this scheme has both plus sides and minus sides. South African news now, and, well, South Africa, Andy, your homeland, of course. Well, I mean, I guess everyone's homeland, but more recently your homeland. Uh, It's had some genuinely fantastic news this week. Uh, South Africa's richest black man, Patrice Motsepe, has announced that he is giving away half of his wealth to improve the lives of the poor. Uh, He was born in the Soweto Township, uh, which... Incidentally, Andy, of course, was the site just a couple of years ago of John Oliver scoring a sensational free kick against a Soweto football team. Dipped over the wall, in off the bottom of the crossbar, completely unstoppable. Anyway, that's not the point. It's a different point. It's a good point, but it's not the point we're making here. The point is, uh, he is a lawyer by training, and he's uh, South Africa's first and only black billionaire. Uh, He founded his publicly traded mining conglomerate, African Rainbow Minerals, which has interest in platinum, gold, coal, and other minerals, and that is where he has generated most of his money. He also owns a Pretoria-based football club uh, called the uh, Mamelodi Sundowns. And you see, Andy, he is proving that you can be a businessman who owns a football team and not just automatically be a qualified (laughs) Mr. Mosefi said that he was inspired to do this by the spirit of Ubuntu, an African belief system which translates as I am because you are, meaning that individuals need other people to be fulfilled. He said South Africans are caring, compassionate and loving people. It has always been part of our culture and tradition to assist and care for less fortunate and marginalised members of our communities. And that's a lovely sentiment, Andy. I would have the stipulation that's not so much in recent history, been the culture of white South Africa. I think you have to add an asterisk there. That culture was occasionally lacking in compassion for marginalised members of society. Occasionally. A bit. <laughs> Not all of them, Andy, but enough. They were, they Do you were, get what I'm trying to say? They were just stockpiling the compassion, John, so I could splurge right. it all at a later date. They were compassion volcanoes. They were just lying dormant for decades. Very, very dormant indeed. <laughs> 
Well, this is Bugle issue 222, and to mark this very special occasion, a special, exclusive reader offer for issue 222. You get 2% off your Bugle voluntary subscription for you and two friends you introduce (laughs) to the Bugle. That's right, 2% off a figure of your choosing that you decide you'd like to pay for 52 weeks of premium grade fact per year or month. Or week. So say if you were thinking of donating £30 a year, this week's special 222 reduction, you'd only have to contribute £29.40. If it was $6 a month you were thinking of forking out, you could save yourself literally 12 cents a month. Can you afford to turn your self-proclaimed nose up at that? Yes, you can. But should you? No. Uh, <laughs> thanks to all of you who have already voluntarily subscribed to the world's most influential audio newscast, the audio equivalent of the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Pravda, the Journal of Political Economy, Depravda, that's the Racia tabloid version of Pravda, Australian Women's Weekly, You and Your Brick Monthly, and the teen magazine Bliss, all rolled into one easily ignorable 40-minute pavlova of misinformation. Uh, however, we do know that by a process of simple uh, mathematics, that's uh, adding things up with bits of wood your dog has found on its walkies, there are still loads of you buglers out there who've been too excited by the prospect of being able to pay uh, for the past, current and future bugles that you've listened to for nothing up to now, that you've uh, just been too excited to do it. To uh, You've been dancing around, bouncing up and down, and unable to sit down at your computer. Go to www.thebuglepodcast.com, click on the voluntary subscriptions link, and do your bit to uh, help keep this podcast going. So um, if you can find a couple of minutes in your day to do that, buglers, this is the week to do it. 2% off for this week only. So maybe you could factor that in and give 1% more than you were planning to give in the first place, thinking you'd still get a discount. Anyway. The point is, it's a sensational offer, Andy. <laughs> it's a sensational offer. And I mean, just wait for Bugle 333. I just cannot <laughs> wait to hear how that dominates your every thought process, Andy. Yeah, so if you want the Bugle to last that long, then take advantage of the Bugle 222 offer. Your emails now, and uh, we have an email here from Dan who had a dream. He said... Dear Andy Warhol, John Cena, and Christmas Tree Shop, according to the suggestions given to me by Google Autofill-In when I type your first names in. (laughs) Well, you've got to be pleased with that, John. You've got to be pleased with that. Yeah, I've definitely come out of that well. In fact, to be honest, I think we all did. Anyway, the point is, I had a dream last night in which John had been bitten by all five of the exotic venomous snakes in his exotic venomous snake collection. I mean, I brought that up myself in your dream, I think. (laughs) Uh, He lay there crying for help, and I was the only one nearby. I quickly dialed 911, but was dismayed that the operator didn't seem to understand the immediacy of the situation. After trying numerous times to go to send someone from poison control, I ultimately screamed into the phone, damn it, you have to help, the bugle depends on it. (laughs) Let this be a warning to Oliver to give up your obsession with collecting exotic venomous snakes. Failing that, let this be a warning to never come to me with your exotic venomous snake bite related problems. (laughs) Beth, Dan. Well, that is good to know, Andy. (laughs) Well, it's clearly, I mean, reading the subconscious of that, as there is in any dream, is... uh... You know, the, the the venomous snakes clearly stand for your venomous satire, John. Yeah, that's it. I, I didn't even think of interpreting <laughs> it as anything other than completely literal. That's very good, Andy. <laughs> uh, this one uh, comes in uh, from an 11-year-old who writes, Dear John, Andy and Chris, 
in order of who I'm most likely to see as I live in the Bay Area. Um, depends which Bay. I may be the I may be the youngest bugler ever. I'm eleven. Uh, I've, wow! Is that is that yeah? Well, I don't know if we've had. I think that's, I think that is the youngest so far. That the we've youngest heard. that's emailed in. We've had yeah. a few potato prints emailed in, so let's assume they're from younger <laughs> ones. I'm eleven, but I've heard on the podcast that John is in the new Smurfs movie. That's now, right. I, I personally wish there would be a communist Russian Smurf society that blitzed the Smurf village like Russia storming Berlin. Oh my God, he's a better eleven-year-old than I was, Andy. <laughs> However, as much as I despise the Smurfs, uh, come on. <laughs> no my... one despises the Smurfs. Despi- well, no John, one does. He despises the Smurfs, but clearly approves of the excesses of Stalinist Russia. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> However, as much as I despise the Smurfs, I will watch it simply because John is in it. If Good, a... do that. If he's a communist and or German Smurf dictator and or attacking the Smurf village. P.S. <laughs> screw you, Chris. I would say that that particular girls may have psychotic dictatorial tendencies, Andy. <laughs> yeah. It's all funny now, isn't it? Until that 11-year-old becomes president and starts to try and take over the world. Yeah. He also sounds like an 11-year-old who's just been sat in front of the television by his parents whilst they spend the <laughs> afternoon drinking with the History Channel on. <laughs> That's right, flicking between the History Channel and the Smurfs and getting a bit confused about where reality ends and fiction begins. <laughs> uh, we have another great email here from Damien, who says, Dear Chris, John and Andy, in order of financial gain in the event of the zombie attack catastrophe, time to read this week that England are invading Mali, as we've just mentioned. He says, way to go. This means only 21 left of the 22 countries England has yet to invade, <laughs> as recorded in Bugle 2.15. That is phenomenal, Andy. Uh, he goes on to say, go you good things and bring us back some of those sweet Mali tiger skins. <laughs> oh, what? It's in Africa, no tigers. Well, how about picking us up some statues then? Um, sarcophagi? <laughs> sarcophagases? No, can't spell that. Come on, there must be something in terms of two worth stealing. No, wait, I meant liberating. Not preserving. Yes, I think it's preserving. On English soil, where it rightly belongs. A preserve. <laughs> Oh, what's this? You have a repository of rare books and manuscripts in Timbuktu, whose current whereabouts is totally unknown. Jolly good show, chaps. Singing Royal Britannia. <laughs> Keep the bullshit going. F-U-C, Damien. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, that is quite exciting. I mean, there's always a... Every cloud has a silver lining, and... Uh, That's very good, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's I mean, very good to knock one off that list. That's a tough list, that yeah, 22. Yeah. To put a line through it, that's very good. So, thank you to the Islamist extremists who've made this all possible. And given yeah, in fact, let's, let's, in fact, we can completely turn this bugle around from where it... You know, we, we need to start recording this again, Andy, with that in mind. That's, <laughs> the context has completely changed it. So do keep your emails coming in to info at thebuglepodcast.com uh, and there'll be more of those next week. Sport now, and, well, this Sunday, John, it's the biggest sporting event in the history of the universe. Super Bowl... 47, and what a week to have it in. Bugle 222. 2-2-2, of course, the record score in a college football game. When George... What, Andy? Have some numeric discipline. It's just, it's three of the same numbers. That's all it is. 222 is the record score in a college American football game when Georgia Tech beat Cumberland College 222 0 in 1916. That's. Uh... Yeah, that's... That's running up the scoreboard. You make no friends that way. Disappointing performance from uh, Cumberland. To be fair, they had disbanded their football team. 
the year before, but had to pay, had to play, or they'd incur a fine of three thousand dollars. So, uh, so they just turned up oh. with a load of guys and got mashed. That's that's proper sporting spirit, John. So Super Bowl forty-seven. It's the brother bowl, John. The two uh, brother head yeah. coaches. The uh, one is going to end up Romulus, and one's going to be Remus. Come. Uh, Come uh, Sunday evening, uh, what's your what's your prediction, John? Well, it's it's this is a very tough one to call, Andy. I believe that Vegas is going with the 49ers by four points. I think it's going to be closer than that. Right. I, I can't call it, Andy. I, can't, I, I think probably San Francisco are going to win. Right. So if I was you, Andy, I would put your entire house on that. <laughs> Because, I mean, it sounds like it's going to come down to the very fine margins, like uh, which quarterback has the less greasy lunch. Um, that's really got to affect your grip on the ball. Uh, which team yeah. ends up spending Saturday night in the New Orleans Jazz Club until 5 a.m.? Well, and which team scores more points? That could um, that could be absolutely crucial. And also, which set of cheerleaders? Uh, which which set of cheerleaders more unequivocally expresses the wonders of gender stereotyping in the twenty first century? <laughs> these these will be <laughs> crucial factors. And the key could come down to a couple of key plays. You know, could the 49ers rookie quarterback Colin Kaepernick uh, spring scuttleback our bottle Scrange on a good beef jerky route through Ray Lewis and the Ravens watermelon in a bucket defense? Can Ravens playmaker Joe Flacco find receipt wider Jamelius regret with an underarm snuggle pass on a woodpecker play to left field? There's so much to look forward to in this annual game of high stakes fight chess. <laughs> that is a good way of putting it. But the real money, Andy, the smart money goes not on the Super Bowl but on the Poppy Bowl. Uh, which, as people in America know, takes place every year before the Super Bowl as a TV channel, puts a bunch of puppies in a pit, throws a football in there, and basically tries to keep score on what happens, which is largely puppies chewing on the ball and shitting. Uh, I don't know how the points of that works out, but all I know, Andy, is I have a hot tip that chestnuts, the puppy chestnut, is really going to bring it this year. So put your money on whatever team chestnut is playing for. See, your halftime show is always the uh, showbiz highlight of the year. Controversial choice this year. The late Glenn Miller uh, sadly cancelled. <laughs> uh, he had agreed to come out of the grave for one last hurrah. Uh, he hopped on a plane to New Orleans, just disappeared. Can't help it. Can't kick that habit. John, it's going to be a very awkward Christmas in the Harbour household. Uh, what do you want for Christmas, love? Oh, Mum, I want a ring like he's got. Well, if you want a <laughs> ring like he's got, then he's going to have to have a loser's hat like you've been wearing since February. <laughs> So this special uh, Super Bowl bugle, uh, we have a, a prize quiz in which, uh, if you get the answer to this question right, uh, you could play for uh, the Baltimore Ravens in the Super Bowl. If you do get the answer oh, right, just turn up in New Orleans uh, wearing some uh, Baltimore-type kit with a helmet and say, uh, I've won this competition, uh, can, I, can I please be on the bench? Uh, the question is, why are the Ravens called the Ravens? Uh, is it because, A, when the franchise, then known as the Cleveland Browns, uh, won their first match in 1944, their starting quarterback, Frampton Lescarpe, was playing with two live ravens tucked down his trousers? If one of the birds squawked, he'd call a running play. If they both squawked, he'd call a passing play. If neither squawked, he'd do a quarterback sneak. And if one laid an egg, he'd go for a trick play. Lescarpe's ravens uh, went 4-0 and at the start of the season before both were injured. Uh, Albert Raven broke a wing after Lescarpe was sacked by Horndog Kappelhain of the San Diego Snouts. And Geraldine Raven had her beak depointed when Lescarpe took an overhurled snap back in the nuts from uh, the Brown centre <laughs> Cornelian J. Skankhammer. Uh, was it because, B, uh, they were named after the Edgar Allan Poe poem, The Raven? Uh, 
They could have been called the Baltimore Annabelle Lees, the Baltimore Conqueror Worms, or perhaps most intriguingly, the Baltimore Premature Burials, if the <laughs> titles of those works were being used. Or was it because C, the franchise only employs players with jet black raven hair? It's always operated a strict hair colour code, always has throughout its franchise history. Uh, of course, began, as I said, as the Cleveland Browns, then became the Jamestown Gingers, the Santa Barbara Strawberry Blondes, and uh, most famously of all, Miami Bald. <laughs> so if you can get one of those, um, those right, then you will win a, a place on the team. And the right to take out a Bugle voluntary subscription at thebuglepodcast.com. Uh, I can tell you that the 49ers are called the 49ers uh, because 49 AD was when the Jews were kicked out of Rome. And uh, they decided to commemorate that in the name of their franchise. Makes sense. Yep. So that's it uh, for... I'm, I'm predicting a draw, John. I think it's going uh, to be a shared Super Bowl this year. That's uh, nil- That'll be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. That'll, that'll be a lovely gesture. It's going to turn if, up. Uh, they just say, well, let's, let's, let's both share it. You have it for six months, we'll have it for yeah. six months. Well, let's cut it in half. <laughs> let's cut it in half, Solomon style, <laughs> and see who, which brother shall give it to the other brother then. Be a lovely gesture, and a, a symbol of peace for a, for a troubled world. So uh, you have it in your hands, the Harbour brothers, to solve all the world's war problems. Uh, tune in next week to the Bugle to find out whether they have taken that chance. We'll be back with Bugle 223 with John, hopefully in slightly better sonic quality than he's been on his mobile phone from Denver. Uh, <laughs> that's it, Buglers. Until next week, goodbye. Bye! And don't forget, you can check out our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.